Welcome to Heartland Church. It is our prayer that as you listen to the following message, you would experience the heart of God for your life. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Now, let's join this week's service already in progress. And influence in this whole arena, and I've learned a lot from him. Some of what I said this morning, I got from him yesterday, and I hope I didn't steal his message. And uh, I've heard of, I was just looking through my notes from last year when we had him into the school. And so I want you to give a good heart and welcome to Pastor Brad Sherman. Well, thank you very much. We've got to make sure our tech is all working here. We, I don't, oh, there it is. Yeah, there's my slide. I've got uh, PowerPoint for you today. But thank you, Dave. I really appreciate uh, uh, being here with you. And, uh, you know, the more I get to know Dave, I, I saw my wife smiling when he was talking because it sounds a little bit like me, right, honey? Yes. And so, uh, um, you know, it's, it's amazing how when we get together, you know how preachers do when you get together, you just you preach to each other the same messages over and over. <laughs> And uh, we never seem to get tired of hearing them. But, uh, uh, but I've just been impressed with just having, from coming from different uh, places, we still have the exact same views on so many things. That's so encouraging. So, so after uh, the introduction there, I, I have a feeling I might be more of a confirmation than information. But, uh, uh, but I'm happy to do that. But I, I, Dave asked me to come and share... Um, and he didn't use these terms, but, you know, in early America, there were always what was called election sermons. Pastors always did an election sermon before an election. So we've got an election coming up here uh, in, in November 6th. In fact, now, uh, what's today, the 7th? And so I think starting tomorrow, you can actually go to your county auditor or some locations and actually vote early. So, so the election is upon us. And so... Uh, so this would essentially be an election sermon, and um, but um, so uh, that's that's been a tradition, and as Dave was saying, that's not something that has been as common in the past decades as it was in early America. So I'm hoping that will change. But as 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 Dave mentioned, we are in a in a battle for our culture, and uh, I want to start off by telling you a little story, and it's based on this concept that only informed people have the power to be free. You see, people have been coming to this nation, immigrants, uh, for, for a long, long time because they wanted freedom. Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And, and so this nation was founded on Christian principles. And I hope to make that case uh, very clear today. But uh, people have been coming here seeking freedom. And I heard a story once and, about a man who came on a steamship years ago. Um, uh, he came to America as an immigrant, and it took everything he had to save up the money to buy his ticket. He bought a ticket, uh, boarded the ship, and uh, was just waiting to get to the land of the free. And as he was traveling across the ocean, I don't know how many days it may have taken, but uh, he would at mealtime he would go to his room and, and uh, just eat crackers and cheese that he had purchased for the trip. And because he couldn't afford the meals on the on the, the fancy meals on the ship, and and so uh, eventually the trip was over, and he got they were walking down the the gangplank in New York City, and the captain was at the sh- at the 
was there saying goodbye to the passengers. And, and he said to, the, to this man, he goes, I, it's been a pleasure having you with us, but I, I'm just curious. He said, did we do something to offend you on the trip? And he said, well, he goes, no, why would you say that? He goes, well, every time we had a meal, you would always disappear. You never would eat with us. Uh, I just wondered if we did something that we're not aware of that, that offended you. And, and the man said, oh, no, no, Captain, that's, that's not the case. He said, you know, it took everything I had to buy this ticket to America, and I have great hopes and dreams. He said, but, but I just couldn't afford those fancy meals. And the captain said, sir, did you not know that the meals were included with the ticket? And, of course, this man had a lack of information. He didn't understand the agreement. There was, and I think that's true of us. That's true of all of us in some area or another. There are things that we need to learn about our covenant with the Lord. There are things that we need to learn about uh, how much authority we have, how to apply it. Uh, There are lots of things like that that we really need to learn. And when we get that information, we are more free. Uh, We have more opportunities, more blessings. And so uh, that's that's what I want to do today is share some things about um, the covenant that we have. And now, of course, when we talk about covenant, the freedom that we have was purchased by first by the blood of Jesus. But that covenant and that freedom has been maintained by the blood of many people who have died in the battles to keep our nation free. Now, I'm certainly aware of the flaws and the, and the failures of our nation. But, folks, this is the, is the freest nation that's ever existed on the face of the earth. Our government is unique to any government that's ever been on the face of the earth. And I, and I just want to show you some points to make that, to make that clear. Um, but to give scriptural background to that, Hosea 4.6, a scripture that I'm sure you're familiar with, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And that, you know, if we don't have the right knowledge, then we face destruction in certain areas. And then, uh, this is George Mason, who's known as the father of the Bill of Rights. Now, this, uh, this block of granite right here, I snapped that picture myself. That's on the south side of the Capitol right here in Des Moines. And there's a quote engraved in that. And it's, it's uh, there at the state capitol. But it says, George Mason said, if free people do not examine their liberties and how they were obtained, they risk losing those rights. And so we must learn how our, where our liberties came from. Otherwise, we don't have the means to maintain them. And then, of course, James Madison, who's known as the father of the Constitution, said a well-instructed people alone can be permanently free. And uh, this next little diagram I want to show you is is what I call a biblical worldview. It's a very simple diagram, and there's lots of different ways that people explain biblical worldview, but I like to think of it like this. And these are the three institutions that are established by God. Now, there are many areas of culture that we uh, get involved in, but when it comes to institutions that God has established, I see three primary ones, the church, the family, and civil government. Now, uh, family, as the church, of course, you notice this line right here, that's the spiritual and the natural, or that's heaven and earth. And so the church basically operates in both the spiritual realm. You know, Dave was talking about praying for our nation. You know, that's, that's operating in the spiritual realm. We're dealing with spiritual powers, wrestling with principalities and powers. But it has influence, and it manifests in the natural world. And so, and so the, the church operates in both the heaven and earth realm. And so, but the, hurt, the church is the house of God. It's the family of God, or the ecclesia, which... It has to do with the ruling body. 
And uh, I like what he said about legislating, you know, through our prayers. That's, that's, that's what we do. So we've, we've spent a lot of time as Christians, you know, learning church and how to do church and what the role of the church is. And, you know, we, we meet on a consistent basis as the church. So we're, we're pretty much engaged in this institution called the church. Amen. And then of course the family. I mean, I, we're, we've given significant attention to the family. Family's important. I mean, I look back here, I see, I see my wife, I see two of my, my sons and their wives and five of my grandchildren sitting back there. That's, that's a blessing. And, uh, I've got two other daughters and six other grandchildren that aren't here. Um, but, uh, but you know, I think about my family and I just go all soft inside, you know, I mean, and I want to learn how to operate in the family. And so as a church, it's part of our role to, to, you know, help family and, and, but that's an institution that God, and that's, and notice that it says private, you know, that's, that's pretty private stuff, <laughs> you know, I mean, the church can speak and teach and encourage on family. But uh, bottom line, God set the family up, and the father is the head of the family. And I don't know about you fathers, but if, if anybody ever come into your house and told you how, to, how you're supposed to deal with your kids, that's kind of hard to take, isn't it? <laughs> so, you know, um, so you, you know, each family has to leave and, and become its own unit. Well, anyway, enough about that. Yes, the importance of the family is there, and the church has given... A lot of information to that. But when it comes to civil government, so the family is the private realm, the civil government is the public realm, and for the most part, in our culture, and in the past few decades, as, church, as the church, we have not spoken into the, the civil government realm very much. But yet, that's one of God's institutions. It's just as much under His authority as any other institution of God. And I'll show you through the scripture here in just a moment you know, how that is God's institution, okay? So anyway, that's what we're going to be talking about today is this institution called civil government. Now, Matthew 28, 18 through 19, that's what we call the Great Commission. And notice what Jesus said. And he spoke to them and said, spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of the nations. Now, I've looked in several different translations of this, and I can't find one that says all authorities have been given unto me in heaven and earth, except in the realm of civil government. I can't find that translation. I just, it's, I just can't. So when he says all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, that includes civil government. So as Christians, we have authority to speak into and to be involved in the civil government realm. Okay, so it includes civil government. Now, separation of church and state. People are going to say, well, what about separation of church and state? Dave mentioned that, and I get the feeling he's probably talked about that before. But we've done a little survey, and this is one of the questions on a survey that we've done, a little book that I wrote called The Freedom Quiz. But the phrase, one of the questions in there is this. The phrase separation of church and state is found where? A, the Declaration of Independence. B, the U.S. Constitution. C, the Bill of Rights. Or D, none of the above. Now... Yeah, I know. You guys know that. So you, you know that it's D. <laughs> it's none of the above. So, um, but we, I think, I think it was like, we did a survey at the Iowa County Fair, and I think it was 70% of the people we surveyed didn't get this one right. In fact, there were 10, and, and it was mostly a conservative group of people at, at the county fair at Iowa County. Iowa County, is a, it's where we live. It's a small county. 
but, and fairly conservative, mostly farmers. And of course, anytime you go to a county fair, it's mostly farmers, but uh, it seems like. Um, but anyway, uh, and then there were like 11 questions on this test, and one of them was just an opinion. But we, if you scored that like a test, we ended up with an average score of about 26%. That's a failing score. And so, you know, for the most part, our, our general population simply does not understand the principles of our freedom. They just don't. And so I'm on a mission to inform people about the principles of our freedom. Because as we saw from these quotes, where, where there's no knowledge, people are destroyed. And uh, it doesn't have to be hard. In fact, I don't have the quote prepared here today, but Thomas Jefferson basically said... It doesn't require a great deal of education to do this. <laughs> in other words, all we have to do is get a few basics and spread it wide to a lot of people. Now, there are, other, there are a few people who want to go deep and learn all kinds of knowledge. But most people, that's not where most people live. So, so we need a strategy where we can take a little bit of key information and spread it to a lot of people. And so that's, that's a lot of what I'm trying to do. Um, the First Amendment, but back to the separation of church and state issue... The First Amendment says this, Congress will make no law respecting an establishment of a religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for the redress of grievances. Now, this first part, uh, no law respecting an establishment of religion, is the one that gets twisted and people try to call it separation of church and state. But uh, uh, what's happening in our culture right now, you know, years ago, uh, there, it, you know, even though this whole separation of church and, mentali- church and state mentality, even though this threat of losing tax-exempt status or being prosecuted, even though that threat is unconstitutional, because it is an abridgment, to say that you can't stand up in church and express your views, isn't a, that abridges our freedom, <laughs> That is, a, that is unconstitutional. In fact, no, no organization has ever lost its tax-exempt status except one, and that was the Randall Terry's church on the abortion issue, and he got it back, by the way. And so they have never really pressed this. It's been a big bluff all along. They have never pressed it because they know that if it ever goes to the Supreme Court, that whole issue will get struck down. And not only that, we now live in a time when we have several important organizations of free legal representation that didn't used to exist, who would now are just itching for the opportunity to take this to the Supreme Court. Matt Staver with Liberty Council and a few others like that. They're just itching to do it. So, anyway, in other words, we've got the upper hand on this now. And particularly with the Supreme Court becoming more conservative, that's why the left is just losing their, absolutely losing their minds over this. And so, anyway, um, so where did the idea of separation of church and state come from? Well, basically, uh, I'll give you the quick, short version of it. Uh, in 1801, uh, there was a rumor going around, shortly after the Constitution was ratified in 1789, there was a rumor going around that the United States was going to give favored status to the Congregational Church, which was a denomination, and make that essentially accepted as the state church. 
And, of course, there, was another, there were several other denominations in the country. One was the Danbury Baptist Association. And they heard this, and they were very concerned. So they wrote Thomas Jefferson a letter, and they said, you know, you can't do this. Because the, and they were very concerned that that would happen because that's what had happened with the Church of England. The Church of England had a state church. It was the one recognized church. And as a result of that, uh, other churches were often persecuted. In fact, in early America, when it was still the early colonies... If you were a Baptist, Baptists were literally beaten with whips for being Baptists. I mean, that's the kind of thing that was taking place. And so they had had enough of state churches, of government-controlled churches. No control of the church by government. That was, that was the mentality. And so the, so the Danbury Baptists were rightly concerned about this rumor. Well, Thomas Jefferson wrote them back a letter on January 1st, 1802, and he said... Don't worry, we're not doing this. He says the First Amendment has has erected a wall of separation between church and state. And that's where the phrase came from. It was a letter to the Danbury Baptist. And so, bottom line is, the separation of church and state statement had absolutely nothing to do with, with with keeping Christians from being involved with government. It had everything to do with keeping government from controlling a church and keeping government from setting up one church to be favored among all the others. That's what it was all about. And so, in fact, when we look at more of the history, we realize how ridiculous this whole separation of church and state issue is. And, but the reason we have it today is because of something called the Johnson Amendment. In 1954, Lyndon Johnson had been, was running for United States Senate. And he was opposed by a nonprofit group that that didn't appreciate his views politically. And so, but anyway, he won the election. And when he won the election then, in, 19, in, eight, in 1954, he actually um, slipped in a little phrase in and tagged it on to one of the bills that was being pushed through Congress. And, you know, that's how, that's how they operate. I wish they didn't do it that way, but that's, that's the way it works. And that's where we got the whole issue of, that says... 501c3 organizations, nonprofit organizations, cannot speak to political issues. And that's, that's where it came from. And even, even with that, there are limits and quotas, and you can still speak and do certain things. But, and it really even wasn't applied to the church back then, it was applied to other 501c3 nonprofit organizations. So, but nevertheless, as time went on, some of the, some of the people that opposed Christian views and values they began to realize, hey, we could use this. And so they, they, they took a big propaganda campaign public and they began to threaten churches. And, uh, and that's basically uh, the, uh, the story of how we came to where we are today that we've been told that somehow as Christians, we're not allowed to speak to political issues when it's really in the domain of God's authority that we should be speaking to. Okay? Now... Uh, when President Trump was running for, for office, he recognized that pastors were cautious about this. He goes, why are you guys doing this? And they told him, and he goes, well, we're going to fix that. <laughs> you know? And so the first thing he did when he got in office, one of the first things, was that he made an executive order, which is a temporary reprieve. And he instructed the, the, the uh, uh, Treasury Department that they, would, they should not prosecute Christians on this issue. Now, he can't change the law, and uh, Steve Scalise, I understand, has introduced legislation to actually uh, remove the uh, uh, Johnson Amendment, and that's in process. 
but long story short, you can see the progress we're making. And so we have this temporary order in place. And so really, um, what, where we're at now is that we're at a place where, um, you know, it causes pastors uh, to have to re-examine our hearts. Now, if, if we have not been involved as pastors in the political process, now we have to examine our hearts. <laughs> was I not involved because I was obeying the law, or was I not involved because I just didn't want to rock the boat? <laughs> you know, uh, That's the real issue that, that pastors, I think, all over America are facing. And, I, and that's one of the reasons I really appreciate Dave. I mean, you guys have a blessing in Dave Olson, I'm telling you. Um, not afraid to speak. So, anyway, that's the Johnson Amendment. Now, I want you to understand the mentality. This is a a quote. You see, this is not a new thing. It was all the way back in 1853, I think it was. Yeah, Yeah, it was 1853. Some people had submitted these issues to the House uh, and the the Senate Judiciary Committees, and they were trying to scrub all, all this... Christian language out of, you know, the Constitution, out of public life, much like they still try to do today. And so the House Judiciary Committee and the Senate Judiciary Committee, something we've been hearing a lot about lately, um, took these petitions or letters or whatever it was, and they, they mulled over these for some time. And then uh, in 1854, after they had, it was the year the the years switched on them and early in 1854 they put forth this statement regarding this issue of trying to remove christian principles and values from united states government and here's what they said had the people during the revolution had a suspicion of any attempt to war against christianity that revolution would have been strangled in its cradle At the time of the adoption of the Constitution and the amendments, the universal sentiment was that Christianity should be encouraged, but not any one sect. In this age, there can be no substitute for Christianity. That was the religion of the founders of the republic, and they expected it to remain the religion of their descendants. I'm telling you, that doesn't, it doesn't get any more clearer than that. That was the mentality of the, um, of the Judiciary Committees and of, of the House and the Senate in 1854, okay? Um, now, even before that, we have something called the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence is the birth certificate for our nation. And uh, it was, uh, and in a, right near the beginning, there's just a few words here that basically define the philosophy and the purpose of the United States government. It said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, And that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. So first, on the philosophy of of United States government, based on the Declaration of Independence, it says there is a God. There is a creator. That's in the founding documents of our nation. Okay? And then, the second point is that the creator is the one who gives us our rights. See, there's a big segment of political people today who think that rights come from government. But rights don't come from government. Rights come from God. And that's what the Declaration says. And then the purpose, that's the philosophy of government in America. And the purpose of government in America is to protect the rights that God has given us or to secure these rights. 
And so, you know, if this simple concept that we're looking at right here, if that alone was taught to every school child in America, it would literally change our nation. Absolutely change our nation. And that's one of, this is one of the points I'm talking about when I say that we don't need to make constitutional scholars out of everyone in America. All we need to do is take a few key points and spread them out to everyone, as many people as possible. In that respect, one of my prayers is that Lord raise up educators. Amen. Raise up educators. Not only in the schools, but at the supermarket. <laughs> you know, every place we go, raise up educators. We can do this, okay? Because without knowledge, we're destroyed. Okay, separation of powers, you know, our Constitution has three, there's several articles, but the first three articles deal with three branches of government, Article 1, Article 2, and Article 3. Where does that come from? It comes from Isaiah 33, 22. The judge, it says, Isaiah 33, 22 says, for the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. Well, the founders were smart enough to know that you can't put all that authority into one, not, not only you can't put it into one person, you can't put it into one group of people. So they said, we're going to break this up into three parts, and that's what they did. And so they, now if Jesus was here with us today, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, he can handle all that himself. He has the character to do that, and we're looking forward to the day that he does. Amen? But even then, he will delegate authority to people. Who have proved themselves faithful. Because that's the way God works. He has sons and daughters. Amen. And so, but nevertheless, the founders uh, uh, broke it up and they they created a judicial branch, which is the judge part. They created the congressional branch, which is the lawgiving or legislative branch. And then they created the executive branch, which corresponds to the king, the Lord being our king. So even our constitution is built around scripture. And then the source of good government, Noah Webster, one of my favorite founding fathers, and actually he was a very young man during that he was back then, but he actually had input that usually doesn't get uh, much, much uh, attention. But he said this, he said, Our citizens should early understand that the genuine source of correct Republican principles is the Bible, particularly the New Testament or the Christian religion. Now, when he said Republican principles, he's talking about the fact that our nation was founded as a republic. Uh, We went into this in more detail Saturday morning, but short version is this. In a republic, it means ruled by law. In a democracy, now we've been led to believe, most of us, that our nation is supposed to be a democracy. Well, the founders didn't, didn't believe that at all. In fact, they were very negative. They said a democracy is what we don't want. Because there's a quote that's given by Ben Franklin. Um, uh, it's supposed to be Ben Franklin's quote. It's hard to verify I don't care where it came from. It makes a lot of sense to me. But it says this, that the definition of democracy is two wolves and a lamb voting on what to have for lunch. And so that pretty much wraps it up right there. When you think, when you think about that, it, you know, you don't need too much more explanation. Okay. All right. Legitimate government. So what is legitimate government? We've all heard of, we've all read Romans 13, 1 through 4. Let every soul be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So we've read this and stopped right there, and we've said, well, even if we've got completely ungodly 
government that's turned completely upside down, calling good evil and evil good, then we've said, well, the Bible says we're supposed to obey it. And so we've just rolled over and played dead. But what kind of government was he actually talking about? What kind of authority was, was, was he talking about here to the Romans? The next two verses explain it quite clearly. For rulers are not a terror to good works. Those are the kinds of ruler authority he's talking about. Those who are not a terror to good works. But, do, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what's good. And you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So this, this is the type of government that is, and the authority that is from God. Those who do good are reward righteousness and punish evil. That's the kind of authority he's talking about right here. Now, there's plenty of scripture to back this up and corroborate it. Corroboration, that's where we've been hearing a lot about lately, hasn't it? <laughs> okay, Luke 19, 11 through 15. This is one of my favorite passages. This, this is a framework. This, this parable is a framework for understanding God's plan. This puts it all in perspective. But as they were heard, heard these things... Jesus spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So that's the framework for this entire parable. They thought the kingdom would appear. They thought Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem, proclaim himself king, and turn loose his power and rule the world. And in fact, he had already told them that they're going to be judges over the 12 tribes. I mean, they were really looking forward to this. I mean, they had a political mindset. And so they were going to be on the Supreme Court. <laughs> And so, anyway, Jesus wanted them to understand a little bit more about when these things would happen. So, therefore, he said, a certain nobleman, which represents Jesus, went to, into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called uh, ten of his servants and delivered to them ten minas and said to them, do business till I come. And so here's... Jesus is painting the picture of how he's with them now, but he's going to leave for a while, and he's going to receive a kingdom, and then he's going to return. But while I'm gone, here's some resources, and I want you to do business while I'm gone. And then the next verse, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Now, I'm going to stop right there. There's a lot to this parable. Uh, it's, uh, you know, he rewarded them based on their, their faithfulness while in his absence. But there, there's this curious verse there. Verse 14 was always a curious verse for me. Why was it that his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have you or have this man to reign, reign over. We don't want you reigning over us. Why was that? He was gone. He wasn't even present. I believe the reason that they felt so intense about this was because the people who he had left in charge were carrying out his principles and plans much in the same way he would have done had he been here. That's why they hated him so much. That's why they sent a delegation saying, we don't want this man ruling over us. Because the, the people he had left behind, which speaks of us, while Jesus is yet to return, we're supposed to be doing business, his business, 
See, we're just, we've been delegated. We're doing his business in his absence. And so that speaks to the whole political arena. It speaks to the civil government area that we're talking about. We're supposed to be involved in this. And so that's just another, another example of that, okay? Now I want to shift gears just a little bit here and talk about the next big culture battle that we're facing. Dave mentioned it a little bit earlier. How many of you have heard of the DSA or the Democratic Socialists of America? Anybody? Well, that's kind of a new group that's, that's really, uh, really active right now in our culture. And there's several others. I just picked this one out as an example because it's one I've been hearing a lot about. Uh, you know, how many of you have heard of the guy, I uh, forget his name offhand, that goes in and does the secret videos of people? He went into Planned Parenthood and recorded the people. What's his name? Uh, I, can't, I can't think of it. But anyway, um, uh, he did a video and he recorded one of the people working in, in the United States government. And, and this guy was bragging about he does all of his DSA work while he's on the job. And nobody cares. He goes, you can't fire a federal employee anyway. And so these DSA people have worked their way in to positions. And this is what's being referred to, if you hear, you've heard this term, as the, dark, or as the uh, deep state or the shadow government. You know, these people have worked their ways in. And even though we may have a president that's conservative or a congress, these people have found their ways into bureaucratic positions, and they're still carrying out their agenda. And, and, and that's what is being referred to as the swamp and draining the swamp. Weeding all these people out is a huge, huge job. And it takes somebody with some real backbone to get it done. And it's a big job because these people, and I'll show you here in a moment, how long these people have been working this plan to, to infiltrate American government, okay? But that's... Democratic Socialists of America. So the next big battle, though, that we're fighting is socialism. Now, socialism's been going for a long time, but the point I'm making today is that socialism is now out of the closet. If you remember back when uh, Barack Obama ran for president and when he was campaigning, he made that statement to Joe the plumber, remember, about spreading the wealth around. And, of course, people latched onto that and said, what do you mean by that? You know, that sounds a little bit socialistic, but nobody would actually come right out and call him a socialist. Well, that's, that's history now. I mean, we have people, <clears throat> so they were still hiding the fact that they were socialists. They were still trying to be somewhat covert. But now it's out, of, it's out of the closet. we got Bernie Sanders running as a socialist, a self-proclaimed socialist. We've got socialists everywhere. And, you know, uh, used to, the, so certain senators would be speaking and they would talk about socializing. Oh, and then they would catch themselves and, and uh, use another term instead of socialism, you know. But it's out of the closet now. And this is the next big battle. In fact, there was a survey that was done uh, recently. And I think it was nearly 50% of millennials think socialism is a good idea. And so we've got a problem. I mean, just because we may have won an election or two for those that we think are turning things the right direction, and that's good. That doesn't mean this battle is over by a long shot. By a long shot. Okay. All right, uh, I'm going to give you a brief history of socialism in America. Of these five guys, uh, Thomas Higgison was a Unitarian minister, Clarence Darrow, a lawyer who, you know, was a leader in the ACLU, Jack London, an author, you probably heard of him, he wrote White Fang and Call of the Wild, those books. He was a rabid socialist, went, went around giving lectures on socialism. And then J.G. Uh, Phelps Stokes, he was a wealthy, uh, 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 I forget 
you know, what you would call him, but he was kind of a wealthy businessman. He promoted the public ownership of all utilities. That was a socialistic move. Upton Sinclair ran for office as a socialist, socialist at one point and then as a Democrat. These five guys in 1905 founded an organization called the Intercollegiate Socialist Society. And so they met in the loft above Peck's restaurant at, uh, at 140 Fulton Street in Lower Manhattan. My wife always laughs when I say that because she's heard me say it so many times. You know, it's kind of like <laughs> it burned in our memory. But they met to plan the overthrow of the predominantly Christian worldview that still pervaded America at that time. Now, they met in Peck's restaurant. Uh, they made a plan to overthrow the worldview, the Christian worldview in America. The organization was called the Intercollegiate Socialist Society. Their purpose was to promote an intelligent interest in socialism among college men and women. In other words, they knew they were going to be resisted, but they were going to go argue the merits of socialism on college campuses. That was their goal. Then they infiltrated their ideas into college campuses and public schools. Uh, By 1912, there were chapters in 44 colleges. And then by 1917, there were 61 chapters in schools and 12 in graduate schools. And then in 1921, they changed their name to the League for Industrial Democracy. Okay? And then they entered the main street of America's education elite. And then by the mid-1930s, there were 125 chapters of student study groups of the League for Industrial Democracy. So, um, that's a brief history of how it all started in 1905. Now, that's not to say that there weren't people doing things before that, but they formed an organization and put in motion a strategy to attack the education systems of America. And, folks, any university campus you go to right now, you you can't generalize everything, but for the most part, the, the faculties of most universities are completely populated by socialists. And Christians are shouted down and humiliated and told to shut up and, and get in line on a regular basis. Now, there's a few good ones out there. You can't say there aren't. And thank God for them. Amen? But, um, but that's, what, that's what's happened in America. Now, in, 19, in the 1950s, there was uh, some research done. And, and, in fact, these things were published. It wasn't even a... There were some raids that took place and some information that was gathered. But this, these things were actually published. I mean... You can go online. You can find these things. I mean, they, they haven't even tried that hard to keep these things secret. But in 1950s, the communists published their goals for America. First was get control of the schools. This was their, their strategy. Get control of teachers' associations. Soften the curriculum and use schools as a transmission belt for socialism. Infiltrate the media and gain control of key positions in radio, TV, and motion pictures. Use Uh, environmental movement to destroy business because they thought it was the only vehicle capable of creating enough regulation and red tape to discourage business growth. You see, discouraging business growth is part of their plan. If they can crash the economy, then they can come in with a new solution and establish and consolidate power. And so the failing economy under leftist leaders is no accident. It's part of the plan, okay? Uh, They create uh, enough red tape, it, it hinders growth and drives jobs out of the country. Discredit the Bible. That was on their list. Eliminate prayer in schools. Well, this was 1950, but in 1963, they got it done, or at least got the law passed in the Supreme Court. Infiltrate churches and replaced revealed religion with social religion. Discredit the family as an institution. Promote 
cohabitation instead of marriage, promote homosexuality, degeneracy, and promiscuity as normal, natural, and healthy, get children away from parents into government programs, break down cultural standards of morality by promoting pornography, eliminate all laws governing obscenity by calling it censorship and a violation of free speech and free press. So these are the goals. And when you read that, does it sound, any of that sound familiar? Well, of course, that, and they've had these goals all along, and they've been working their plan, okay? So this is the battle that we're fighting in our culture. 1983, we'll jump forward a little ways. I, I shared more detail of this on Saturday morning. I just, these are just a couple of these. But the battle for, this is a quote from, by a guy, a man by the name of John J. Dunphy in the Humanist Magazine, 1983. He said, the battle for humankind's future must be waged and won in the public school classroom by teachers who correctly, I would put that in quotes, correctly perceive their role as the proselytizers of a new faith, a religion of humanity, utilizing a classroom instead of a pulpit to carry humanist values into whatever they teach. So it doesn't matter what subject you're teaching, they're going to promote humanist values in it, okay? And humanism, by the way, means man is God, and instead of creation, we have evolution, and it goes on from there. That's what humanism. And the Supreme Court actually said humanism is a religion. It's just a secular religion. Okay? So the classroom must, must and will become an area of conflict between the old and the new. The rotting corpse of Christianity, together with its adjacent evils and misery, and the new faith of humanism. So that's what humanists believe. They believe Christianity is a rotting corpse that needs to be buried and done away with. So that's the battle we're facing. These are the people that we're wrestling with. We're actually wrestling with the spiritual powers behind them. But like I said earlier, it manifests in the natural, in the realm of politics, largely. Okay. March 2004, I snapped this picture at the University of Iowa. It was March. I was up on the University of Iowa student camp campus, I snapped this picture. I thought, well, there's a perfect example right there. The Iowa International Socialist Organization, they had their table at the student union. U.S. troops out of the Gulf defend abortion rights, uh, free abortion on demand. That says uh, gay marriage, yes. Uh, And then there's all kinds of other anti-conservative propaganda there. And uh, and in fact, the guy's t-shirt, notice it says, got marks, question mark. You know, so, I mean, I saw this guy, and, you know, I didn't know who the guy was, so I, I smeared his face out, so there could be no uh, accusation of uh, doxing, as they say. But, um, nevertheless, that was 2004. And then here's September 16th, 2009. My son gave me this poster. Jason got that off campus. You remember, he, he took his, looks like he took the baby out, but... But uh, Jason brought me this when he was going to school at the University of Iowa. Socialism, what it is and why we need it. Wednesday, September 16th, 6.30 p.m., 2.14, Phillips Hall. And so and it, it, the little, there's a lot there, but basically that part right there says, come to this meeting to discuss the idea of socialism and socialist strategies for changing the world. So here we are, 2009. Again, front lines for the war on freedom is education. May 1st, 2011. These are just a few photos from the May Day Parade. In California, Communist Party USA, uh, Workers of the World Unite for Communism, uh, the SEIU, uh, Labor Union, 
right in step with them. So, you know, and it comes right up today, and you, I'm sure there are many, many more current examples that come to your mind. Okay? This is Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin. Uh, I've, I don't know him well, but I've, or even really acquainted, but I did meet him once. I heard him speak. Uh, he said, I've studied Marxism, and the things that I know have been done in every Marxist insurgency are being done in America today. He was the commander in Mogadishu, you know, in that Black Hawk Down movie. He was the commander there. He was the commander, that, one of the founding commanders of Delta Force. He's the man that Noriega surrendered to in Panama. I mean, this guy knows his stuff, and he's been studying this stuff for years. He serves on Rick Joyner's uh, board of directors. And, and he says they're doing it. Everything, their entire plan that, that he's seen Mark, in every Marxist takeover of every country, he says they're doing it today in America. They have a plan. They've been working their plan. But we, too, have a plan. Our plan is called Thy Will Be Done on Earth as it is in Heaven. Amen? <laughs> That's the same response we got Saturday morning, isn't it? <laughs> uh, so when we work our plan, we're preparing the way for the kingdom. I love this scripture, Ephesians 6, 15. It says, it's talking about the spiritual warfare we're fighting. And then it says, and having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, I used to read that for years and just simply associate that with winning souls and evangelism. But folks, it says, having your feet shod with what? Preparation. We are preparing the way for what? The gospel of peace. The good news of peace. I think that speaks of the kingdom. It can speak of several things there, but, but it speaks about the coming of the We're preparing the way for the king and for the kingdom. So, um, just about to wrap up here. So what do we do? How do we execute our plan? Well, you know, that's, that's a big topic, and, and that does require more time. But let me give you a quick overview. First, pray for all people. Second, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2 says, Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Now, this scripture usually gets quoted as the... I've heard people read this, and they say, See, so, so we're, first we're supposed to pray for those in authority. Well... <laughs> That's not really what it says. First, we're supposed to pray for all men. So to me, that speaks of revival. That speaks of the people. Because there's no greater power than the people. And we need to educate the people. We need an educated population. The socialists know that. That's why they went to the schools. They're educating the people with socialism. But we need to educate the people. Okay, and we've got a power on our side that's greater than their power. Because greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Amen. So first, pray for all men. Pray for, and, and pray for a revival in this nation. That people will, will come to know the Lord and come to understand his principles in all areas of life. And then pray for kings and all who are in authority. That we may live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness. You know, I think I grew up... You know, I was born in 1954. I, I grew up as a kid in the country living on an acreage and fishing and hunting and trapping. And I mean, it was like it was like heaven on earth when I look back. I thought it was just what everybody had. But I mean, nobody locked their doors. Nobody took the keys out of their car. I drove to high school with a rifle in the back window of my truck and didn't even lock it. You know, I mean, it, that's just the way it was. You know, I mean, it was there. So I'm just saying, you know, it's, it's not the kingdom of God that's coming. But I'm just saying 
we have examples in this country of peace that is unprecedented, particularly when you compare what we've seen going on around the world these days, okay? So pray for kings and authority because it, all people have an influence on the king. And, um, and the goal is to, to have a peaceable life. You know, we're, we're going to see peace on earth and goodwill toward men when Jesus returns. That's his birth announcement, right? Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. But then Jesus said, don't think that I came to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. <laughs> so what's, what gives here? Well, his mission is peace on earth. But the path to get there can get rough. That's what he's saying. We've got to become warriors. And so, um, but meanwhile, we can taste the powers of the age to come if we do our job. And that's why we can have peace on earth. That's why we have situations like I was describing in the, growing up in the 60s. It's just like, I was separate. I know there was turmoil back then, you know, the hippie movement and all that, but. I was isolated from it, man. I was just enjoying life as a kid. You know, we can taste the powers of the age to come if we do our job. You know, if we get the right people in leading in government and if the population is educated and elect the right people. Again, disciple the nations, teach the people to observe, you see. We already looked at this, but look at the rest of it. Go, therefore, make all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he says, Go. Understood subject of that sentence is you. You go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe. That's the key phrase. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And it's not just individuals. That's, of course, the strategy. But the method is to get the whole nation to observe the principles of God. Teaching the nations. Okay? And and he says, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So he's with us to help us do this. Amen. All right. And then vote for righteousness. Proverbs 29, 2. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. So, yeah, God wants us to have righteous people in authority. All right. And then I want to close with this scripture. We've got to be diligent and not slack off. I didn't put the whole scripture here. Let me just paraphrase it. But in 2 Kings 13... Is the story of Elisha. He was about to die. And Joash came to him as king. And, and regarding the battle with Syria. And Elisha said. Pick up your arrow and your bow. And he picked it up. He said shoot it out the window. And he shot it. And he goes that's the arrow of victory over Syria. And he said now pick up the rest of your arrows. And he said strike the ground. And so Joash struck the ground three times. And then Elijah was angry. He said you should have struck the ground five or six times. But you only struck it three times. Because of that, you're going to continue to have wars. See, here's the thing. We've got to be diligent. We've got to see our job through to the finish. We can't just slack off because we had one little victory here or there. We can't just strike the ground three times. We need to strike the ground. You know, I, I can just hear some of these moderate politicians after this battle we just had for the Supreme Court. When they, when they nominate the next one, they'll say, well, it's our turn. We're supposed to get somebody that's more liberal and balance the court. You, you'll hear it. No. We need to cement. We need to strike the ground five or six times. Not only that, we need a greater majority in Congress of conservative people. You know, one of the reasons that we, things are still plugged up in Congress is because we don't have a supermajority. Many things need a supermajority, and we've only got like a very, very slim majority in the conservative side. And so 
we need to strike the ground, continue striking the ground. We need not to relax just because we have a little bit of victory. And that's what this parable is about. Or it's not a parable, it's a story of what actually happened in 2 Kings 13. You can go there and read it. It's pretty, it's pretty uh, informative passage. So uh, I want to just uh, summarize by saying this. We need to understand the battle, the spiritual and the natural manifestations of it. We need to be informed. We need to inform others. We need to vote for righteousness. And then we need to get involved. We need to be salt and light in the culture, whether it's running for office or just helping others get to the voting polls, whatever we can do. And then don't quit. That was the last point. Don't quit. Keep on going. That's what we've got to do. Now, I I gave Dave some handouts uh, for the school. I don't know if those are available. You can uh, look at them, more, more information. Uh, one, of them, one of them is a little paper called A Vaccination Against Socialism. You know, basic points, principles that we need to understand as to why it helps us understand and be, and be resistant to socialism because socialism is being propagated in kind of sideways comments all through the media, here and there and everywhere. And if we're not careful, we'll just swallow and accept these principles without realizing. So we need to be vaccinated. We need information that immunizes ourselves against these socialistic principles. You know, I, there was a, the brother up here was talking about, during worship, I noticed this. He was talking about our mindsets being changed. He saw mindsets changing. And when he said that, I know that can apply to lots of different areas, but a mindset is a, is a house made of thoughts. It's a, it's a way of thinking that gives access to demonic spirits. And, you know, all of us have, deal with strongholds. We have certain mentalities. It's called the renewing of the mind. When we renew our mind, strongholds break. And so I felt like when he said that, I believe he was speaking prophetically probably about several issues. It could apply to lots of different things. But I believe one of those things he was speaking about was this issue today. Is that strongholds are being broken off of our minds today regarding our involvement in the political arena. And so God is raising up some mighty warriors. And I believe today he's raising up mighty warriors to to, uh, go out and begin making a difference in this third area that has been a third institution called civil government in the public arena. So um, I've got a website called kingdomcore.org, but that's uh, the one about the kingdom message. But this website, AmericanBackbone.us, is primarily the political stuff. Uh, Those handouts that I mentioned are also on that website. But I want to pray right now and pray for these strongholds. Would you stand with me? I want to pray uh, for these things just to be broken. If you would, um, I just, uh, just, if you would, just put your hands on your head and just take a grip of a stronghold that has been controlling our minds. And I just wanted you to agree with me. I want to just make a simple declaration. Father, in the name of Jesus, I declare that strongholds are now broken, and I take the stronghold of political complacency off of your people in the name of Jesus. And Lord, I take it off right now, just so just pluck it off. And so, Father, I release these people, Lord, to be mighty warriors and educators in our culture. Lord, culture warriors to go out and make a difference in this land, in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Man, man, Brad, thank you so much. Just stay up here. I want us to pray for Brad.
his family, and that God would continue to use him. Extend your right hand towards him right now. Father, I thank you for this man of God, Lord, for the message you've given him. Lord, I ask for favor, Lord, that you would extend his influence. And Lord, we ask that what he shared would spread far and wide. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Brad. Appreciate it. You've been listening to a presentation from Heartland Church in Ankeny, Iowa. For more information about our ministry and its available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Thanks for listening.